Praise him for his faithfulness, amen. Uh, do you believe he's a mountain-moving God? If you've seen him do some things in your life, then you know maybe more than others how powerful he really is. And uh, if you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't know, I've never really seen God do that in my life, then that's okay because we have his word that reveals to us the God that he is and the God that he desires to be in our lives. And Esther chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. And so uh, Esther chapter 2 is where we're going to start. And uh, before we get into the text, I do want to say uh, just welcome to anyone visiting today. If you are visiting with us, we'd love to just get your uh, information. You can fill out the card in the seat in front of you. Uh, there's a little card in there. You can drop that off to the Welcome Center. We'd love to give you just a small gift, our way of saying thank you for being here today, and then also give you some information about our church, how we would love to help encourage you in your walk with Christ. And so if you're visiting today, or maybe you've been uh, coming for some time and never filled out a visitor card, uh, we would love for you to consider to do that so we can get to know you better and encourage you in your walk. And so uh, this morning, again, we are in week two of our Esther series, uh, which uh, I have to kind of let you guys know ahead of time. Uh, my original plan for this was a four-week series. Um, and then uh, this week in preparing for today, um, I was reminded when I was looking at the calendar that the last Sunday of this month on the 27th, um, we are going to have our Word of Life missionary who's speaking at our men's event. Um, he's going to stay over and he's going to be sharing in the morning service with us. And so because of that, and because I really want to give him all the time that he uh, needs or wants to be able to share what God is doing, to open up the word and, and give us the message that morning, uh, we are actually going to be doing this in three weeks. And I know what you're thinking. There's no way that Pastor John is going to take a four-week message and go to three. Now, a four-week to an eight, that you believe. But a four-week to a three, you struggle in that believing. Uh, but we are just going to look to the Lord if the Lord wills, and it's according to his will, that we'll go ahead and finish in three weeks, and we'll be good. We'll finish up Esther next week. Um, obviously, if God changes something, we will go with God's plan. But uh, I am excited to dive into the book of Esther today. Uh, as we said last week, our goal in this series, if we had to say there's one main goal, one main thing that we're striving for in studying this book, is to deepen our trust in our amazing God. Uh, to deepen our trust in our amazing God. If there's one main point we want you to take out of here in the next week, and this week, and last week, in these three weeks, it's to deepen our trust in God. Uh, we looked at last week the big picture of Esther. We kind of looked at the big picture of the book, discovering that even when God seems absent, even when God seems absent, he is not only not absent, he is also working. God seems absent in our lives, at times in our lives. It's not only that he's not absent, he's actually there, present, and working in and through our lives and those situations. And we talked about that a little bit more last week. Uh, as a reminder to where the story is taking place, and if you weren't with us last week and you want to kind of catch up, you can go on our app, you can go on the website, you can find all the sermons there. Um, a lot of the ser sermons and series are on there from years past, and so if you want something to listen to during the week, it's just you kind of need some devotional things or something you just want to do on your own, you can access all of our sermons on our app or our website. Uh, the app is North Goodland BC in your app store, and the website is just northgoodland.org. And so all those sermons are there that you can access and maybe you want to start with listening to last week's if you weren't able to be with us to kind of get caught up. But just as a quick summary, we talked about the story of Esther is taking place in the Persian Empire. This is modern-day Iran. This story is taking place following the return of the Jews to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity. 
Some of the Jews stayed in the Persian Empire, and this is the group that the story of Esther is dealing with. And this group of people are going to be under a great threat very quickly. Last week, we established that the king, Asuerus, who is opened up in chapter 1, was focused more on himself and his rule and his reign and his power than anything else. The book opens presenting all of his power and might, his wealth and his importance. And it's this chapter all about him. It's setting up all about his palace and his rule and his reign. And we pointed out in one of the verses in chapter 1, even when the queen was throwing a party, it had to note that it was actually the place where she was having the party was owned by Asuerus. It was his place that she was allowing her to have this party. It was all about him. As we move through the story, we will meet some other characters. The first, who we mentioned last week, is Queen Vashti. And so we're going to talk about a lot of characters. We're going to talk a little bit about Queen Vashti. We're going to talk about Mordecai, Esther, obviously, kind of what many consider to be the main character. But we're going to find out. There's other characters that have a lot more content about them. But we're going to see how, obviously, Esther fits into all this. We're going to talk about Haman, uh, the villain of the story, if you will, kind of the enemy in the story. And so we're going to set up all of these characters. And the point I want us to draw from that is this is an unlikely cast of characters. This is an unlikely cast of characters. And we sit back and we think, how could God work in this? How could God do anything for his glory through this? And so Esther chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, After these things, when the wrath of King Asuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now, to note that, we have to stop. And one of the things I love to encourage people to do is when you're reading a a text or you're doing Bible study and you come across a name or you come across something that's referencing a different event. So here, when we read this in chapter 2, we have to stop and ask, okay, what happened that caused the king to be full of wrath? What decree is he talking about? What's going on in this? And so a lot of people will just keep reading. And maybe it'll explain it later. But the best thing to do is to go backwards a little bit and read the previous so many verses. And now we're not going to read all of the text. But if you read chapter 1, you're going to find out that the king basically asked for Vashti to show up to this event, to come. And she denied his request. I'm summarizing. But basically she denied his request. As a result of that, he makes a decree, which we're going to get into a little bit here, at the end of chapter 1. That decree basically states, if you look here in verse, uh, verse 20 of chapter 1, this is a decree that's being spoken of in chapter 2, verse 1. So chapter 1, verse 20 says this, And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great. Did you notice that? That's not by accident. How, how great is his rule and reign in his empire? It is great. They had to even put that in there again. Did you guys catch that? And when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for he is great, right? For it is great. All the wives shall give to their husbands honor both to great and small. That's the decree that's being spoken of here. And then verse 21 says it in saying, please the king. So it pleased the king, this decree that was made. So now let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 1. It ends by saying, and what she had done. And what was decreed against her? Verse 2. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom 
that he may, that, I'm sorry, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan, the, the palace, to the house of the women, to, unto the custody of Hege, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and, their, and let their things for purification be given to them. So there's this encouragement to the king. Hey, let's send out into all the provinces of your empire to gather together these fair young virgins that they'll go through purification. And basically what's going to happen is you're going to pick one of them to replace the queen. Verse 4. And let the maiden which pleased the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king. And he did so. And so queen denies his request. The king makes the decree. And then he decides to go along with this plan to seek out a new queen. Since this king is all about what is pleasing to him, it is unwise to go against his desires. Queen Vashti did just that. She refused his request. And he got so angry that he makes a decree throughout all of the empire that wives should give their husbands honor both great and small. And now God's people said, amen, right? That was a, that was a little bit of a joke. A little bit of a joke. All the men were like, I want to say amen, but I think I'm going to get in a bad spot if I say Amen. Now, this is interesting. He makes a decree. All the wives and all the empire have to give to their husbands honor and respect. Really, what he's saying is they have to do whatever the husband says. No matter how important their husband is. No matter how big a deal the request is. If it's a small request or a big request, they have to submit. They have to do whatever the husband asks. This is completely in reaction to Queen Vashti denying the king's request. Now, of course, the Bible speaks of wives respecting and honoring their husbands. But this decree is very different than what the Bible lays forth. Again, remember, the Bible is recording for us in the book of Esther historical things that happened. When the Bible records something that happens, it isn't necessarily saying we should follow whatever is recorded. Here's what I mean. Abraham, it is recorded for us that Abraham lied, is it not? Is that recorded and given to us as an example that we too should go forth and lie? No. It's merely saying this is what happened. Abraham did this. This was the consequence of this. The Bible records many events and things that happen in the people of God's lives that are just recounted for us. Just because it's recorded and just because they did it is not the Bible's way of saying, now you go forth and do the same. The Bible is actually very clear on this. We read all kinds of failures of God's people and nowhere does scripture encourage or affirm that we're to go do the same thing. In fact, it's a warning to us. Don't go this route. Don't do this thing. And so here, when you read this, you got to understand God's word is not affirming this decree as good or that it's right or that it's how it's supposed to be. The Bible's merely recording for us historical fact. This decree was given. Now, when we read scripture all the way into the New Testament, we understand the Bible, again, speaks of wives submitting to or honoring and respecting their husbands. However, the Bible makes it clear that the basis for the love and respect in a marriage between a husband and a wife is a deep love for Christ and a love for one another. Yes, the Bible talks about wives, respect your husbands, honor your husbands. But the basis for that respect and love is not even really finding its root in the husband or in the wife. The root to which we find that foundation to love my wife or a wife to love a husband is actually founded in my love for Christ, which really comes only because Christ chose to love me. 
And as Christ chose to love me, and now I'm saved and able to be in this relationship with him, and I love him, from that love, as an overflow, comes the love and respect that a husband and a wife should have for one another. That is not this decree that Azuerus lays forth. His decree is simply this. I don't like that the queen said me no, told me no, so I'm going to make a decree where all wives have to do whatever their husbands say. That's the basis for his decree. That is not at all what God's word lays forth as a basis for why we should be in submission one to another. Also remember, there is to be equal submission one to another in Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, which lays forth that passage that many people reference, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. I'm kind of skipping some verses, but that's the meat of what a lot of people quote in that passage. Right before that, in Ephesians 5, it says, Be in submission one to another. So it's saying in the church, we're going to be submission one to another. In the marriage, we're in submission one to another. And then in the dynamic of the marriage, husband and wife, the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which is meaning self-sacrifice, right? I'm giving myself to my wife. I'm, I'm giving whatever to, to guard her and to nurture her in the things of the Lord. And a wife, in response to that kind of love, will follow the leadership of that husband. But again, it's not husbands greater than wives. It's not husbands rule over wives with an iron fist. It's this idea of an equal submission in Christ, which leads to this dynamic in the home. And so here we have to understand when, when Azuerus does this, I don't want us to think, oh, okay, that's just like what the Bible says over here. This is completely different. This is based completely in selfishness, in pride, and in what the king wants, not what is best for others. The king's decree, again, was basically saying a wife cannot disagree with or deny a husband's request. Meanwhile, the king and men in this culture can do whatever they please. Meanwhile, in this culture, while a wife has to just say, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, to the husband, the men of this culture can do whatever they want. And by the way, the king is going to have more women than he's supposed to. And so we see it's not really an equal submission. It's not an equal faithfulness. It's more of a subservient type culture that the men are trying to enforce upon the women, which again speaks to the wonder of God's word. So many people attack God's word and say it's a book that's, that's just sexist. Jesus hated women. The Bible is anti-woman. In fact, if you read scripture, the Bible is, if, if you want to say it this way, is very pro-woman. I don't know if I could say it that way. But it actually advocates for the rights and the freedom of women. In fact, if you study world history, anywhere the Bible has been and that God's word has gone forth, women in those cultures have more rights than when the Bible is not present in those cultures. Women in those cultures are treated better than in cultures that don't have the word of God. Because when we really understand that Christ loves all of us equally, God does not elevate men above women and say men are better than women. In fact, he says, we're all sinners in need of a savior. We all need grace. And so that's why we have to understand this. It's, the Bible is not anti-woman. In fact, when you think about it, who were the first to see the empty tomb? They beat the disciples there. And so God is not anti-woman. But when you read this decree, we see in this culture, women are not seen very highly. They're not respected as they should be. And so here we're going to see how this decree, while seemingly not fruitful, not helpful, not productive, will actually bring about God's working. It's in this moment of the king's wrath against the queen, 
and a decree that is made which creates the opportunity for God to work. I love the quote I read of A.B. Simpson. This is the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He said this, God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment. And the world will wonder where they came from. I love that. God is preparing his heroes. And when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment. And the world will wonder where they came from. See, the world sits back and thinks, man, how did this come about? How did you get fit into that place? Man, what great coincidence that you're there. Oh, no, this is all God's arranging. God is working. Even in this decree, even in the wrath of the king, even in all of this that we see, this pride and arrogance, God is going to work. So this is what we are seeing in and with the main characters of the story, that God is preparing his heroes, and when the timing comes, he will put them in place at just the right time. The first character I want to unpack for us this morning is a certain Jew. That's how he's described in Esther, a certain Jew. His name is Mordecai. Now, again, I love character studies in God's word. I love diving into a character or a person and seeing what they were like or who they were and how God used them because I think it brings the text to life for us. And so let's look at chapter 2, verse 5. And we're just going to read a couple verses, verses 5 and 6. It says, now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of uh, Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with uh, Jeconi, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried, Babylon had carried away. And so here we introduce ourselves to this man named Mordecai. Uh, He is of the tribe of Benjamin, and he lives in uh, Sushan, the capital of Persia. So he lives in the capital city of Persia, and he is of the tribe of Benjamin. His great-grandfather, Kish, was taken into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar into Babylonian captivity. So he is of a line of those who were once in Jerusalem, taken into captivity, and now he has grown up and lived in this Persian empire. We can gather from Mordecai's actions as the story unfolds. And again, if you've never read the book of Esther, I encourage you. It's a short book. You can read it in really just a couple of days. So I encourage you maybe this week to go ahead and read through the whole book um, as we're not going to go verse by verse through the whole text. But I encourage you to take some time, read through the book, and you're going to see as his actions unfold in the book, we can conclude that he had a faith in God. From standing up for his people, his response to the decree of the king, which comes later. He ends up putting on sackcloth and ashes and repenting and crying out for God to work. Because of these actions, we would assume, we can conclude that he was most likely a man of faith. He was also a man that was aware of what was going on around him in the empire. He was a wise man. He was a man of great wisdom, we believe. There was a plot that we read about in chapter 2, verse 19. So go over there quickly with me. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 19, Mordecai is very uh, integral in in being involved in this kind of plot that becomes aware and actually saving the king's life. So chapter 2, in verse 19, 
It says in verse 19, and when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. And we're going to talk about all that when we get into the character of Esther in just a moment, what's being talked about there. Verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, uh, they basically come up with this plot, drop down to verse 22. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition or investigation was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So basically, Mordecai sitting in the king's gate, and he overhears this plot to assassinate the king, to take the king out. And Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, and on behalf of Mordecai, what's going on, the king finds out, he investigates, he finds out that it's true, he takes these guys that were trying to assassinate him, and he has them hanged. And there's an important part in this story that I find so amazing how God works this all out. That last line in verse 23. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Basically, the history book recorded that Mordecai is the one that warned the king, that discovered the plot and saved the king's life. Now, sometimes in our life, there's moments that seem pretty insignificant. There's things that happen every day of our lives that we don't even really think of as being important or matter much. Or How is this going to affect the rest of my life? But I want to remind us that God is at work even in the small things. That there's times things happen in our life that God allows to come into our lives, which seem insignificant to us in the moment. But as time goes on, you're going to discover God was actually preparing something well in advance of when it would take place. And it's in those small things, those seemingly insignificant matters of our lives where we've done something to glorify God or we've pleased God in some way. We've served, we were obedient, and it seems so small. And then years later, you find out that that little act that you committed, that small work of God that you did that seemed fruitless in the moment actually produces an eternal fruit. That God's going to use this thing to change the course of history. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, but that's for other people. That's for big Christians. That's for those people out there. Not for me. I mean, I get up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed. I get up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed. My life is pretty routine. How could God possibly use my everyday routine things? I'm not out there being a missionary in other countries. I'm not doing all these great things for God. I want to remind you and encourage you. I find in scripture, often it's the little things that we do in obedience to God, in faith that God will use and bless to bring about great change in the world around us. It's not always the big moments that God uses. Now, there's always those times where we read about the big moments, sure. But I believe the majority of our Christian life, if we're being honest, is not so much lived up on the top of the mountain or in the valley but an everyday journey is just back and forth. It's those everyday moments that God will use. Now there's going to be the mountaintops where God does things you can't even imagine. And there's going to be those valleys where things seem darkest than they've ever been. But then there's those journeys up and down where we're kind of just living life. We're kind of just in the everyday. 
And so many Christians struggle with that. God, I want to be on the mountain 24-7. But you got to remind yourself, when he's with you and you're with him and you're just enjoying time with him, it doesn't really matter if you're on the mountaintop or the valley or the in-between. You're just walking with him, and so it's good enough. Going to work, doing the job well that you were called to do, it seems like you're not making a big impact, but that coworker that watches you work with integrity, that watches you and hears you say kind words and hears you say things like, how can I pray for you? Simple little things can impact a person for Christ more than you can imagine. And so my encouragement to you is this, this small little line seems insignificant to us, but we're going to find out it actually not only changed the course of history, it saved the people of God. So we see here Mordecai, this very important man in the story of Esther. Let's move into our next character, obviously the person of Esther. Uh, she is recorded for us as predominantly a beautiful queen. Look at Esther chapter 2 and verse 7. And he, this being Mordecai, brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither the father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when, his fa- when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan, the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the woman." And then we're going to drop down to verse 17. Verse 17. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And so we read of Esther here, this beautiful queen. Esther, who is being taken care of by Mordecai because her parents are gone, is chosen as a possible replacement for the queen. Remember, in this culture, she really doesn't have much of a say in the matter. She really is just kind of swept up in this gathering of these fair, young, beautiful virgins. If you are beautiful enough that they think the king would be pleased with you, the decree has been made, you're coming. And then it's just up to the king who he picks and who he chooses and who he doesn't. And so she's kind of caught up in this. But Mordecai, her father figure, if you will, who's been taking care of her, is there for her. When you read the story for yourself, you're going to find out he was very involved of every moment of the process. He wanted to know, how is Esther doing? The Bible tells us that after a year of purification to be ready to go before the king, Esther is brought before him and he falls in love with her and makes her queen. Now, I just want to think for a minute here. How many ladies would like to go through a year of purification, if you will? That's basically six months of one type of oil bathing, preparing, six months of another type of preparing to make sure you're ready for that first date. I mean, you guys spend a year showering and perfuming and getting ready for that first date. I think many women would be like, I don't think it's worth it. Just going to be real with you, right? I'm like, ah, just pass on that. But after a year of purification, she's brought before the king. Mordecai suggested to Esther that she keep her Jewish heritage a secret when she was taken as a possible queen. This would also suggest that the culture did not view Jews in a good light. 
as we will soon find out, some even hated the Jews. Some have questioned that. Some have questioned Mordecai's walk with God. Uh, Mordecai, if he's a faithful Jewish believer, why on earth would he hide or tell her rather to hide her faith? Shouldn't she have been open about her faith? Shouldn't she have been vocal about her faith? We could debate that to any degree, but Mordecai, in his wisdom, decided maybe it's better that she just keep this secret for now. Maybe it's better that she just doesn't tell anyone for now. And maybe in his wisdom, he was thinking, maybe if she keeps that secret, she becomes queen. Now she can use her position to help the people of God. We don't know the fullness of why Mordecai said this. Some have again assumed Mordecai was an unfaithful person who just decided to, out of fear, keep it secret. Some have said, no, he was faithful because we see other actions that say he was faithful, that he was merely thinking what would be the best for God's people. And so again, there's been some debate on this. I don't know that we can conclude from this one statement or this one encouragement to Esther that he was unfaithful before God. I think it was in his wisdom he believed this was honestly the best decision. So while this story has also been made into a love story. I got to say this when we get to the person of Esther and we read this, that the king fell madly in love with Esther. Love at first sight. Ooh, man. It's like a Hallmark movie all over again. It's wonderful. It's this beautiful, you know, oh, he sees her and she's so beautiful. And he just falls heads over heels in love with her. I want to encourage you to maybe not see it quite in that light. Again, The king does love Esther, but Esther didn't really choose the king. Esther doesn't say, it doesn't say that she loved the king so much that she wanted to be a part of this. She obviously is kind of caught up in it. She goes along with it. We're going to find out she makes some other choices. Maybe at some point she does fall in love with the king. Maybe at some point they do have this relationship where she actually loves him, truly loves him. But the point of the story isn't so much the love story between Esther and the king. It's more a story of how God works in the hidden moments. That God is always at work, even when things seem to be going not according to plan. Again, she may have ended up loving the king, but to any young ladies here today that are thinking about marriage one day or deciding on someone maybe to marry at some point, I would encourage you not to look to Esther's story as a pattern for your future husband. And here's why I say that. I would encourage you to choose someone that doesn't show interest in you due to the process of elimination. Merely just, okay, let's get all these ladies together and I'll just pick from among them somebody that pleases me most. I don't know that that should be the best dating advice that you should have as a young woman looking for a husband. Well, I like him. He chose me out of all these girls, so he must like me. That's probably not the best way to go about it. I would rather encourage you, instead of just the process of elimination, but choose a man that will honor and respect you uniquely apart from others. Choose a man that's willing to keep himself before God and not just date anyone and everyone, but choose someone who says, I value you enough that I'll wait for you. I value you enough and love you enough that I'll respect boundaries and I'll keep my hands to myself. And all God's people said... I'm telling you, we live in a culture today that does not understand true love. To any young ladies here today, giving yourself to some young guy because he says he loves you is not love. That's lust. If someone loves you, they'll wait for you. 
And you need to respect yourself enough and don't let God values you enough and sees you as a beautiful daughter of his, that you're worthy of someone waiting for you. And to the young men here today that maybe consider marriage at some point in their future, be a young man that says, you know what, I'm not just going to pick from the crowd, but I want to be where I need to be before God in my own walk with him so that I have the wisdom and the, the ability to see who is it that God has for me. And then I'll respect that person and honor that person because whether or not I marry them, that's somebody's future wife. That's also God's daughter. And I'm going to respect that woman. And so here in the story of Esther, it's been made this love story, but I don't know if I would look to this story as an example for young men and young women today. We all can also fall victim to seeing the beauty recorded for Esther or of Esther and think that it's all about her beauty that makes her able to do what God has called her to do. I want to say her beauty, while recorded for us, is fruitless unless it is surrendered to God. She is a beautiful young woman, the Bible records. And that is, that is a gift of God. God. God formed her that way. And God is going to use that to help advance the will of God. But her beauty, like anyone who is considered beautiful in our culture, which again is always in the eye of the beholder, her beauty would be fruitless if it wasn't surrendered to God. We see in our culture today many beautiful people not surrendered to God. The culture looks at them and says they're beautiful. They put them on magazine covers, on online. And, and we're supposed to, as a culture, just look at it and go, that's the example of what I should look like. But we see in our culture today, there's no fruit to that because it's not surrendered to God. It's not pleasing to God. I also would suggest that her beauty was not only skin deep. I believe that she had character to some degree, at least from what's recorded in Scripture. I believe that she was a person who loved her people, who was willing to potentially sacrifice her life to save her people. She was a person that desired to please God. We see the, uh, the fast that takes place. And so I would say that, yes, she is a beautiful young woman, but don't let that be the only characteristic you think of when you think of Esther. She was also beautiful on the inside. And if I can give any advice or encouragement to anyone here today, beauty that is only skin deep will fade Beauty will fade. The, plea, the, the applause of our culture to just promote and advocate those that are beautiful, it will fade. But a beauty that is inward, a beauty that is deep within, that is a beauty that is to be cherished. And I believe that's what Esther had, not just an outward beauty, but an inward beauty as well. So we see Mordecai, this Jewish man that raises Esther and tries to use wisdom to encourage her. We see Esther, who is a beautiful young woman on the inside and out, who becomes queen of Persia, a great, important leader. And then we meet our third character, a jealous leader in Haman, chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. After these things did King Azuerus promote Haman, and I'm going to skip over some names here because I don't know how to say them. So I'm just going to skip over them. No, uh, promoted Haman, the son of Hamadeath or Hamadetha, whatever, uh, the Agite, and advanced him and set him above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants they were, uh, that were in the king's gate 
bowed in reverence to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. So we got Haman and Mordecai are now going to come into conflict. This man, Haman, was granted a position of honor, and others bowed down to him. Mordecai makes the choice to not bow down as the others do, and this infuriates Haman. Why Mordecai did not bow and pay honor to him, the other servants asked, but he would not answer. It's interesting. They actually say, hey, why aren't you doing this? And he almost acts like he doesn't even hear them. He doesn't really acknowledge them. But for whatever reason, he chose to not bow to Haman. And Haman, uh, it says here, it was an Agite, the son of Hamadath. Wow. Hamadatha. There we go. Haman was likely a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. So when you go back into the Old Testament, you're going to find out in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that the Amalekites were supposed to be destroyed. God told King Saul to destroy the Amalekites centuries earlier, but he did not. And these Amalekites were the longtime enemies of the Jewish people. So isn't this amazing? In 1 Samuel 15, Saul is told to destroy these Amalekites. He does not do this. And a descendant of these Amalekites, Haman, is now again trying to destroy the Jews. Because Saul failed to obey the command, his disobedience led to the loss of his kingdom and, in Esther's time, the threat of annihilation of all Jews in Persia. See, this is again where I said a few minutes ago, sometimes we're obedient in the little things. And we see in our lives or we hear stories of things, and maybe we'll never know this side of heaven, but we'll find out that side of heaven, that God used that little moment of obedience to do great things for his kingdom. But I have to say, in equal, that when we're disobedient in things that God asks us to do, those things, although they seem insignificant, will also come back around and cause fruit or consequence that is not pleasing to God. See, because of Saul's disobedience, it actually threatens the very people of Esther's time. Haman uses his position to influence, or rather put influence, over the king to encourage him to give a decree to eliminate not only Mordecai, but all the Jews. He obviously gives reasons that omit his own personal bias. We see this in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. It says here in verse 8, And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad, and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws I diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. He goes on to say, if it pleases you, give me some money. I'll hire some people. We'll eradicate them. Do you catch this? He's saying, it's not for your profit, king. It's not going to do you any good, king. It's not for your glory, king. They're not even following your laws to suffer these Jews to live in this land. Now, again, what's interesting here is this actually goes against what we know of the Persian Empire in that they would normally respect and honor the individual religious beliefs of those cultures in the empire. They would take over a culture or an area, and for the most part, they would let those people continue to worship however they wanted. This is why Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Also, this is why Artaxerxes helped Nehemiah with the rebuilding of the security for Jerusalem. 
Artaxerxes actually sends money and decrees, hey, give him whatever he wants. So Cyrus and Artaxerxes, previous kings, they actually are okay with not only the Jews worshiping the way they want, they're actually okay helping them to rebuild because the Persians, for the most part, encouraged the people groups to continue to have their own culture and religion. For the king to decree a people to be eliminated because they followed their own law, and in Haman's definition, meant they didn't follow the law of the land. Uh, This might be in reference to chapter 1 and verse 8. The Jews most likely did not take part in the feast to the same degree. In chapter 1, verse 8, it says the law of the land was whatever pleases you, do it. Drink it, eat it, have fun, party it up. And the Jews seemingly rejected that. They did not get into all of it as the other people did. So they're not following the law of the land because they're following their own law, the law of God. Notice also the repeated theme so far in Esther. Have you caught the repeated theme that we've come across? What is it that led to the decree where King Ahasuerus says, all the women, all the wives have to do what their husbands say? Because Vashti denied the request of the king, which is really a hit against his pride. Then we have Haman goes to the king and influences the king to lay a decree forth that would eradicate all the Jews because it was a hit against Haman's pride. And then it's also a hit against the king's pride. It doesn't profit you, king, to suffer them any longer. Let's just get rid of them. And I find it interesting, whenever the Bible suggests a theme over and over again, we should pay close attention to that. We're seeing here the destructive nature of pride. That when we rise up in our own self-worth and we think it's all about us and all about what I want, nothing good will come from that. All these things that are taking place is because of pride. The Jews are on the brink of being destroyed. The new queen as well who loves the the king, is potentially going to be destroyed. So how can God solve this problem? How will God bring about a solution when everything is stacked against his people? How could God possibly bring about a solution that would help save the people of God? And the answer to that question is simply this. We'll dive into that next week. I want to close with some simple application questions from our study of this story so far. Simple questions that I would like you to kind of maybe think over between you and God. As we study these characters here in the book of Esther, I want us to think and ask some questions of ourselves. One question I would ask is, how have you seen God move in ways in your life when you were merely caught up in a situation that wasn't of your choosing? Here Esther's caught up in this situation. She's caught up into the, this idea of bringing forth these young women She goes through a year of purification. She's brought before the king. The king falls in love with her. He makes her queen. Seemingly, she's just going around along for the ride. How have you seen God? Even when you were caught up in a situation, you really weren't in control of it. Things were kind of just happening around you, and it's kind of just making things and decisions for you. How have you seen God work even in those moments? Even when you weren't in complete control of what was going to happen next? In what ways, another question to consider, in what ways has God showed up in situations where you felt he was absent? In what ways in your life have you seen God show up in ways where you felt he was absent before, but then you see his hand at work? How has God been faithful when you followed him, even though it meant going against the crowd? See, here in the 
book of Esther, we find out the Jewish people went against the norm. They wouldn't follow the law of the land when it went against what they believed God was leading them to do. The law says, hey, party it up. Get as drunk as you want. Just have fun. And the people of God said, no, we need to draw a line there. We can't do that. Now, it wasn't that they were out burning down the palace, right? They just said, nope, that's fine. You can do what you want to do. We're going to respect our God's laws. So how has God encouraged you to be obedient in a way, maybe in the workplace, maybe in school, maybe even at a family situation where things were kind of all going one way. Everybody was kind of caught up in one way and you were standing there kind of thinking, no, God, I need to be obedient to you in this moment. It doesn't mean that we're jerks for Jesus and arrogant and cocky and boastful and, you know, in your face, but we just stand faithful to him and allow him to move and allow him to be faithful to us as we know he will be. So in these questions, I want to encourage you this morning to spend some time either in prayer there in your seats. Maybe you want to come forward and bend a knee and say, God, help me to see that you are active and present even when it seems like you're absent. Help me to realize that when I get caught up in situations that I don't have the control over, that I can still see you move in and through my life. And God, thank you that you've given me the grace and the strength to stand faithful to you even though the crowd seems to be going away from you. Help me, Lord, not to be arrogant and think it's about me, that when I stand in faith with you against the crowd, it's not that I'm better than them or I have more willpower than them. It's merely my eyes are on you and you're strengthening me to help me to do this. And help me, Lord, to be gracious to those around me. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him as we pray? Father, as we go before you this morning, as we spend this time in prayer, I pray, Father, that you'd help us to know that you are a God that is at work even when we don't see you, even when we don't see your hand, that you are always present in all seasons of our life. Lord, that when we get caught up in situations, maybe things happen at work and we get kind of promoted into a situation or moved to a different part of the shop or something happens where we don't really have control over it and we're just, decisions are made for us and we end up in this new position, in this new place. I pray that we would know that even though we get caught up in things sometimes that we can't control, that you are with us every step of the way. And where we end up is exactly where you wanted us, and you can use us in that moment. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see your faithfulness, to trust you more. Father, to know that you are at work and that you will bring about your glory. Father, thank you for the opportunities you give us to make decisions that will impact others for Christ. In the little things and the big things. And Lord, for those here today that have made decisions of disobedience at times in their Christian life, and they've already maybe seen some form of consequence come from that, I pray that they would know that just because they were disobedient in one moment doesn't mean that you've left them or you've forsaken them. Lord, we've all made decisions of disobedience in our Christian walk. None of us have lived perfect Christian lives And so I pray that we would know that your grace is for us, that you can draw us closer to you, restore us, redeem us, and continually use us for your glory. So, Father, help us to turn from those things that would displease you and turn our eyes to you, excited for your grace and your mercy that you pour out to us. Father, may you be glorified again in all of this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As we are led in a song of imitation, would you come and bend a knee? don't know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, you can receive him today by believing he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Whether you need to be saved or you want to come and pray, 
Thank God for his amazing faithfulness. Whatever God is doing, would you respond as we sing the song of invitation?